Hello, and welcome to Fraud Eats Strategy, an FTI consulting podcast series in which we explore the myriad ways that fraud, corruption, and misconduct can derail strategy and cause havoc. I'm Scott Moritz, Senior Managing Director in FTI's Risk and Investigations Practice, where I assist clients and their outside counsel in managing their response to event-driven white-collar crime, misconduct, and bribery incidents. This is part two of a special edition of Fraud Eats Strategy in which we continue to examine the Ponzi scheme perpetrated against thousands of victims for more than three decades by the notorious Bernie Madoff. And joining me today to continue our discussion is Baker Hostetler, partner and Ponzi scheme expert, Shauna Brown. Welcome back, Shauna. So 2010 was a big year for the Madoff Recovery Initiative. First, on March 1st, the presiding bankruptcy judge upheld the trustees' net equity methodology. You know, obviously, that's a very important underpinning to everything that followed. What is meant by the net equity methodology and what made it such an important milestone in the case? So I don't want to get too SIPA bankruptcy wonky, but, you know, net equity has a very specific meaning in the Securities Investor Protection Act. But in layman's terms, it's essentially what kind of cash do you have on hand with a broker? What securities are in your account? And do you owe your broker anything? That's your net equity in SIPA. But it raises a really interesting question here where there were no securities in your account and really not a lot of cash either because he stole the cash. So what we were faced with was how do you calculate net equity in these types of cases where there are no securities to value? There's nothing in your account. So there were some prior precedents, the New Times case in particular, where in the SIPA context, and then outside of this, obviously, Ponzi schemes happen in all kinds of businesses, not just broker dealers. But the rule generally in Ponzi schemes is cash in, cash out. And that's the way the courts have generally treated it. And so that's what we went with here. And one of the arguments that we made to the bankruptcy judge and then ultimately the Second Circuit, which I think was pretty effective, is, you know, you have a difference here of dealing with reality, which is that Madoff only ever dealt with cash. You were sending him cash and he was sending you cash. That was the reality. Or you can look at the fake statements. And that is a completely fictional world created by Madoff. And it's because he didn't purchase the securities. It's fictional because let's say that you put in your initial deposit. He purports to buy you the securities. He sends you back your statement the next month. Well, after that month, he's only picking trades that win. He's never picking trades that lose for you. And so you're achieving something on that statement that could never be possible if you were really in the marketplace. And so one of the arguments to be made is if you're going to credit that last statement, it's not just that you're giving them the benefit of like Mr. Madoff was doing what he said he was going to be doing. Because what Mr. Madoff was choosing by selecting the winning trades every month is something that no marketplace could ever give any investor. And so you'd be giving these investors something that's really just untethered to reality. And so I view the net equity decision as like the moment when it was, are we going to deal with what, what's true and what the facts are? Or are we going to continue living in Madoff's fictional world? And I do think the courts came down on the right side there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I remember when this was all first playing out, just the monetary loss that was being attributed to it was so fluctuating so wildly, depending on which version of reality the journalist chose to embrace, because it's a, it's a pretty big delta between 20 billion and 65 billion, which is that the, the faux profits were had they been trading, or if you to believe the statements. Also in 2010, your big year, 
the two-year statute of limitations was set to toll. And that led to a flurry that I don't think probably begins to describe it, but a lot of complaint filing and a, and a dizzying amount of money coming in. Can you describe the days leading up to when that statute tolled for the trustee to bring these claims? Sure. So, you know, our investigation obviously began right away as soon as we were appointed. But if you think about the two years, it's really a pretty short amount of time to reconstruct everything that happened in a fraud that was going on for decades. And I think one of the things that people might not appreciate at first glance, so let's say you have relatively simple accounts that were opened up in 2006, 2007, 2008. So the trustee had bank records for 10 years from 2008 going back to 1998. So that way we could track the cash. We knew what was going on because we could see all the money flow. I know FTI likes the money flow. So then we had electronic records going back, I think, to 1995. So that also assisted us in sort of reconstructing the books and records with the great help of everyone at FDI and Alex Partners. And that got us back to 1995. So we're trying to bring all these complaints. We're trying to put all these actions together to recover the funds. And so you would think, okay, great. Right, right now, let's say that we got there by, you know, 2009, we got back to 1995. Well, you can bring every complaint against every account that was negative that was opened after 1995. Well, no, because you know, this is an affinity fraud for one thing. And then also the nature of the business where it you know, kept exploding. A lot of these accounts were connected. Either people opened up accounts for their children or they brought other people in. And so a lot of these accounts were connected by what we call inter-account transfers. So you could only take the cash back to figure out if the account was negative by the oldest account that had transferred money into that account, if that makes sense. So you basically, anytime there's an error account transfer, you can't reconcile what seems to be a very straightforward account until you can take the account that transferred money into it all the way back and so forth. And it actually became this sort of like infinite regression where an account would have 10 different accounts that were transferring into it. So it looked like a very straightforward account opened in the 2000s, should be no problem to reconcile with the bank records. But in fact, we had to take it all the way back to an account that was open in 1983 in order to figure out the cash in, cash out for all of those accounts. And so that really took some time because prior to 1995, we were looking at manual records. Like I was saying, we were going through the microfilm, going through the microfiche, trying to get records from third parties. So that process really did take a while. So it's not as though we could just file all of our complaints immediately. I think the other big challenge, aside from the forensic accounting challenges, was obviously from the legal perspective of just trying to coordinate filing that many actions simultaneously. Um, making sure that your allegations are consistent, making sure that they're correct, making sure, you know, doing all the quality control. I've never been part of an operation like that. You know, as a lawyer, you have you, know, you have your case and you build it and you file your pleadings. And I don't know, I've never seen anything that was this massive that required this much coordination between both, you know, the lawyers, our professionals like FGI. There were so many moving parts, but we did manage to get it all done, um, right? Some of them a little close to the wire made it, made it a little exciting. Um, but you know what? Probably this is true in your line of work as well, is the best thing ever is adrenaline. That's how so much gets done. So deadlines are a blessing because you get that adrenaline going and you can pretty much do anything. It's true. Adrenaline definitely kicks in. So when we were discussing this episode, you mentioned a few settlements of the many that uh, really stood out for you. And let's talk about a couple of them. So maybe chronologically, the first significant settlement was finalized in June 16, 2009, when the bankruptcy court for the Southern District approved a pre-litigation settlement between the trustee and Optimal Strategic U.S. Equity Limited and Optimal Arbitrage Limited. 
And uh, this settlement resulted in the recovery of more than $235 million. Can you tell us a little bit about this settlement and its importance? Sure. So this settlement, uh, the first one, it was really significant in the sense that for a couple of different reasons. For one thing, it was real dollars. So one of the things that I think happens in the Madoff case, especially when you've worked on it for as long as I have, is you become really numb to the numbers. You know, it's not normal to have dozens of actions where you're suing people for hundreds of millions of dollars at the same time, sometimes billions of dollars. And over the course of the years, we would talk about these settlements like, oh, yeah, well, we got a billion dollars in you know, this defendant and five billion dollars in this defendant. You know, that's pretty remarkable. That's not, you know, matter of course for most litigations. And so to have the first settlement come through the door for over $200 million, when we were still in our infancy, still reconstructing the books and records, getting all of our claims together. I think it showed, for one thing, they knew the strength of our claims in which, you know, the trustee had very, very strong claims to recover this money. And it really gave us a lot of momentum to sort of get to that point that I was discussing earlier, where the financial considerations of not dealing with us become so great. So it was a really pivotal moment. I remember that day very well. It felt good to get that money in the door and know that we were going to get some money for the victims. Well, you know, it's funny you mentioned that, that you become desensitized to the amounts. Just in going through my notes and asking, posing the question, given the numbers that we've been talking about, 235 million just seemed inconsequential. Like it's like a rounding error. Crazy how the numbers were were just so eye-poppingly large in in so many cases. So in, in terms of those noteworthy settlements, on December 17th, 2010, the trustee entered into a settlement with the estate of Jeffrey Pickhauer totaling $7.2 billion. Does that mean that Pickauer took out over $7 billion more than he invested? Is that the very succinct way of describing it? It is. I don't think any of us have become so numb that we can't recognize that a single individual withdrawing $7 billion of fake profits is pretty astounding. So that's exactly what that means. You know, Mr. Pickauer was one of Mr. Maynard's biggest customers, certainly as an individual. And it's just a staggering, staggering amount of money. But again, you know, I note the timing of that. So, you know, we settled on December 17th. You can imagine that seven days after all of our complaints were due in the bankruptcy court. So it's not as though that settlement just materialized out of thin air. That was a very hard, you know, hard fought and hard won settlement. So there was a lot going on then. And it was one of those, again, one of those turning points in the case where we knew that we had strong claims. We knew that we were doing the right thing. And then we also knew with this settlement that it was going to provide so much relief to Mr. Madoff's customers and victims because it was just such an astounding amount. And I I do really commend the estate of Mr. Pickauer for coming forward and settling on those terms, you know, doing the right thing. You know, there's those stolen money. That's what it is. It's not anything but that. It's stolen money. And it was the right thing to do to give it back. I mean, is that half the money that was recovered overall? That's an incredible number. So he settled with the trustee for $5 billion. And then there was also a simultaneous settlement with the Department of Justice. So they did an additional $2.2 billion. And that's being distributed, you know, another sort of stream of recoveries for Mr. Madoff's victims through the Department of Justice forfeiture fund. So extraterritoriality is an area of the law that is frequently tested. And the Madoff Recovery Initiative had its own 
territorial rulings. Can you explain the February 25th, 2019 Court of Appeals ruling and, and what it may mean for future Ponzi scheme asset searches and and SIPC liquidations? Sure. I'm going to try to do it to say the word extraterritorial the least amount of times because uh, it's a tongue twister. I, I, um, I got it like right once and wrong once. So <laughs> it's good it's strategy. Saying that word over and over again. And it doesn't get any easier with practice. That's the funny thing. <laughs> so, you know, without, you know, boring everyone on the podcast about, you know, legal, lofty legal principles, you know, extraterritoriality is the idea that U.S. laws apply within inside the U.S. borders, unless Congress explicitly says so. And, you know, Mr. Madoff's fraud, because of the nature of the reach of his fraud, so he had what these, you know, these entities called feeder funds that were his, some of his biggest investors. These customers came in the 90s and 2000s and really fed the Ponzi scheme. This is where you see the, the investments really take off because what they were doing is aggregating investments of other investors around the world and not just individuals. You know, you have special purpose vehicles, you have other financial institutions, but really this is what made Mr. Maynard's fraud go global, if you will. And what the trustee has a couple of different powers. So he can recover from Mr. Maynard's customers in certain instances, you know, where you recover extra profits. You can also recover other transfers that were you know, made out of the firm. But it doesn't just stop there. He can also recover the next level down. So if a Madoff customer, Madoff feeder fund makes a distribution to its investors, the trustee can still chase those transfers because it came from Mr. Madoff's firm. So we had some rulings earlier in the case that sort of cut off that second level of transfer if that transfer was going to a foreign investor, saying that violated extraterritoriality because the U.S. laws are kind of going around the globe when they're not supposed to. And the Second Circuit, you know, very firmly shot that down. And the reason why it's such a big ruling for not just SIPA trustees, but bankruptcy trustees is because the, the reasoning of the ruling was if you, if the money originates with a U.S. debtor, so it's sent from Mr. Madoff's firm or any other firm, the trustee can chase that money wherever it goes. It doesn't matter how far, how wide it goes. And that's what gives trustees like this really incredible tool because you can easily see the flip side. If the opposite were true, the lower courts were going to, were going to stand, it would be very easy to shield your assets from a U.S. trustee. You transfer it a couple of times abroad, you're all set. It would really neuter the ability of U.S. trustees and U.S. debtors to reconstitute their estates and make sure that their creditors and customers are paid. Appreciate you explaining that. I'm going to attempt to say it again. Uh, so speaking of extraterritoriality, the trustee has sought recoveries in multiple jurisdictions, several of which had reputations as, and still have reputations as, money laundering safe havens, Places like Switzerland, Luxembourg, Liechtenstein, the Cayman Islands, and the British Virgin Islands. What are some unique challenges in seeking to recover assets in countries whose legal systems are so different than ours? So there's a lot of different challenges, but the risk of stating the obvious, the, the processes are just so different. You know, we're so accustomed in America to American discovery where it's really broad, it's really wide ranging. And you just get access to a lot of documents. And that's just not true in most of those countries. So, you know, one of the tools that a trustee can use here is, you know, seeking documents under the, what's called the Hague Convention. And it's just a different process. It takes years. I mean, you might be waiting for documents under the Hague Convention for two, three, four years. 
And if you don't specifically ask, if you don't go in knowing exactly what you're looking for, which is, you know, I'm looking for the March 24th recording between Shauna and Scott. If you don't ask for that specifically, you might not get it. And that's just a very different way than the American system is. So I think it's timing. I mean, I think one of the other factors is, unlike here in the United States, the criminal cases go first. So the civil cases are stayed until the criminal cases are done. And you know this better than anybody. Criminal cases take time. You know, they take they take the time that they take. And so I think having the civil cases on hold adds like another layer of delay. And then in some of the jurisdictions, which, you know, I didn't know that much about, you know, Swiss banking laws prior to this case, but there's different rules about what's a crime and what's not. You know, what kinds of information you can take out of those countries, what kind of, you know, information you can seek within those countries. There's a lot of really high barriers. So I would say it's really like time and just a completely different perspective about what's obtainable through the discovery process that really sets it apart from the United States. I had similar experiences doing asset forfeiture work when I was the FBI. You know, there was this whole concept of dual criminality, the conduct, you know, for there to be any potential to repatriate assets, the underlying violation had to be a crime in both jurisdictions. So like that was pretty limiting if it was like a gambling case, for example, and the money went to some you know jurisdiction where gambling wasn't a crime. It was just, that was it. It was, a, it was the end of the, it was the end of the effort. So yeah, I learned uh, some of those lessons the, through trial and error. So many of our listeners are probably surprised to learn that the Madoff trustee is still hard at work, despite already having recovered over $14 billion. How much is still out there? And how much longer do you think this trusteeship is going to continue? Yeah, it's a big question. You know, everyone, you know, when I see people you know, around the city, people I know, they say to me, are you still working on the Madoff case? You know, sort of in disbelief that it could still be going on. And then their jaw drops when I tell them, yeah, and it might be another, you know, two, three, four, five years before we get this all wrapped up. So we still have about 150 cases left. I think there's somewhere between three to four billion dollars out there that we're trying to get for Madoff's customers and victims. But, you know, as I mentioned before, what's really astounding is that, you know, many of our cases are still in their infancy because of all the appeals and all these different rulings that we're waiting for. So there's some cases that are really at the very beginning stages, even though we're you know, 13 years into this recovery effort. So I think once we get the ruling from the Second Circuit on the good faith defense, that will really dictate the, the remainder of time in the rest of the liquidation, because we'll be able to see those cases wrap up, be litigated to conclusion, and then maybe one day, I don't know, maybe one day bring this to an end. What will you do with all your spare time? I can tell you I'm probably not going to read about the split strike conversion strategy. <laughs> you probably don't need to read about that anymore. You could write about it. Well, this has been a really interesting discussion. You know, I've always just sort of admired from the sidelines the work that you guys have done and continue to do. But it was great to just sort of hear from someone who had a ringside seat to all of these things that went on and, and they continue to go on. So I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and, and sharing these great insights with us. Thanks for having me. It was really fun. That was Baker Hostetler partner and Ponzi scheme expert, Shauna Brown. This concludes this episode of Fraud Eat Strategy. I'm Scott Moritz, Senior Managing Director in FDI Consulting's Risk and Investigations Practice. Thank you for listening. And stay tuned for the next episode of Fraud Eat Strategy. If you have an idea about a fraud or corruption case, topic, or guest you'd like to hear about on a future episode, 
email us at fraudeatstrategy at fticonsulting.com. Thank you again for listening.